when I'm making a meal for an athlete or doing fat fudge. Yeah, it's about the food and the synergy of food and the chemistry of food that is really cool. And how are you going to be faster, stronger, have more energy? But it's also like, what is that going to do to you as an individual human? And how are you going to, as a result of feeling your best, move mountains in positive ways in places that I can't even reach? Hi, I'm Mary Shenuda, private performance chef and founder of Fat Fudge, and you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with the incomparable, the unicorn, the amazing Mary Shenuda. Mary, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, that was so big. Thank you for having me on the show. That's how it feels. I mean, we're here in your humble kitchen, but this is kind of where it all began, right? A smaller apartment and a smaller kitchen. I usually ask my guests, how'd you get this job? How did I get this job? Is it called a job? If you want to call it that, what do you call it? You know, I, think, I don't think I've given much thought. It's just what I do, I think is what, what, how I see it. Um, it's a longer story. So my background's corporate technology. And prior to that, uh, I was in high school. So I'm a high school dropout and went straight into corporate America. And that entire time from second grade through the corporate life, I was in a lot of pain and really sick, but accepted that as my baseline. And it was always in the back of my head. And it wasn't until those symptoms became so loud I couldn't ignore them, that I decided to find out the root cause of all my pain and found out that I had an autoimmune disorder. And that began leading me down the path of becoming a private chef, becoming a voice for wellness, and then accidentally on purpose creating Fat Fudge, which is my company. That's the the really, really short version. (laughs) Let's go back in the chronology a little bit, as far as you want to go. um, Did you have a sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up, that kind of thing, when you were a little girl thinking about the future? Uh, I think I went through many different iterations of what I thought I should be um, and was a combination of what I was good at, but I'm Middle Eastern and my parents are very well educated and everyone in the family is a doctor, lawyer, engineer, and that's sort of what's expected of you. Underachievers, got it. Yes, yes. I always feel so great at home. (laughs) And I'm actually the first person in the entire family extended to not go to college. So it's like the opposite story we hear of of children of immigrants. And I think I wanted to be a doctor, a lawyer. I really wanted to dance and sing. Dancing wasn't allowed, terrible singing voice. Uh, My dad is talented in that way and so is my sister. Um, And and then I think for the majority of high school, even though I was in these really interesting honors courses where like I was part of an autopsy at a really young age, which was really cool. Hmm. I wanted to write. I just really enjoyed writing. And I feel like I get to, to do that now, even with what I'm doing with food. But being a chef was not on my radar, even though I cooked all the time. In my culture, you start cooking as soon as you can walk and you're given a job. Like you can pick the parsley and then you graduate to knife skills. And, and I think that's why it was really easy to transition in being a private chef, because I understood food. But then now when I think back on things that I did with food, I'm like, of course. Like I would come home from school, turn on Matlock. <laughs> And then um, make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but grill it like it's a grilled cheese sandwich. Mm -hmm. And then I would fondue a Snickers bar and dip that peanut butter and jelly sandwich into the fondue Snickers bar to watch Matlock. Which makes sense now, but back then I just, that's what I felt like having. Wow, so complex at such a young age. Yeah, oh, I would chop up pepperoncinis and put them on a fudge uh, chocolate cake because I like 
the combination of those flavors. Interesting. So give us some context of what part of the United States you came in from, sure. you know, where, you, where you were born. Born in New Hampshire, okay. raised in the Bay Area in San Jose, and then spent majority of my 20s in San Francisco before coming down to LA. And your parents, are they, uh, did they immigrate to this country or are they born here? Immigrate, I'm first generation. Okay, and where are they from? Egypt. Okay, and so how was that transition going to East Coast, you know, Egyptian family? Sure. sure. Was the transition? Uh, so we moved out of New Hampshire, I wanna say when I was three or four, and went straight into Silicon Valley. And in Silicon Valley, it's a big melting pot. I knew at a really young age that my parents were different. I, I remember at a really strange young age, like four or five, pep talking myself, saying, your parents are different. They're doing the best they can. You won't be allowed to do certain things your friends are allowed to do, and that's okay. So I just sort of accepted that I wasn't gonna have sleepovers or anything of that sort, but I knew that my parents loved me unconditionally, and that was special. Yeah. And why not sleepovers? Because culturally not acceptable, or I actually don't even know the answer to that question. I should ask my dad. Why wasn't I allowed? To... I think that they they're, they sacrifice so much to come here. This is a guess. They sacrifice so much to come here that they want to just protect you and keep you safe. And if you're at someone else's house, there's so many unknowns, mm -hmm. um, and also the culture could be different. So what is it that you're learning at the other house? Um, and that that loosened up over time, um, and. But they were doing the best they could, and they did. I think they, I think they did a pretty solid job. But um, I also had a lot of Egyptian culture. We went back to Egypt several months each year. So I say often, sometimes I feel too American to be Egyptian and too Egyptian to be American. I had this really nice, I think almost like the American dream of like, they did come from here. They did get to live the American dream. And then they gave me all these opportunities that I wouldn't have had had they stayed in Egypt to have a family. Best of both worlds. Well, as someone who knows very little about Egyptian culture, what is different between Egyptian culture and what you might know in the United States? Um, it's just more of a, a feeling, a, a, just a different feeling. One, people look like you. So there's a lot of people that look like me in Egypt. Um, but I think this is more indicative of a lot of um, other cultures that I identify with. Like I really appreciate Filipino culture, Italian culture. Um, different African cultures, there's uh, emphasis on being happy, being connected to your family, being connected to people around you, and less of an emphasis on the hustle and the grind. Um, they really feel like if that is taken care of, that is the priority, the other stuff does end up becoming part of that naturally. Gotcha. Like family always comes first. <clears throat> and there's no glorifying the struggle in, in the culture. It's, it's we're, we're here. It's limited time. This is the prior. This is the priority. And so, what did they say when you didn't go down that path? Did, they, did you get flack or did you get pressure? Or I I dropped out initially without my mom's knowledge. I forged some signatures. <laughs> um, again, my parents are very cultural, but I am so so lucky that even when they don't like what I'm doing, they've never asked me to be anything other than who I am. Mm -hmm. So, how about other people? Did your friends or your peer group? Um, did they pressure you in one path or the other? I'm, I'm curious about this because I know a lot of people who watch this show. Um, well, just from the feedback, I know that there's basically two camps. Sure. There's a camp that is making a ton of money um, and not happy. Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole camp that is still trying to find what they love to do mm -hmm. and that lights them up. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always curious what the path is to find that sort of magical intersection between what you're great at and sure. then 
that rewards you with you know f financial stability. How do you feel about the the whole chase your passion? Um, I think it has a big big asterisk behind it because if like you know I may love to paint, but if I'm a lousy painter, I'm going to be a starving artist, mm -hmm. right? So it's a combination of finding what I love to do and what I'm great at. Yeah, I feel like it's really misguided um, advice. Yeah. Uh, for for me, it's. I'm not trying to find my passion and follow my passion. I'm bringing passion to everything that I do, whether right. it's just picking up the mail. And I think by virtue of being excited and being all in, you'll, you're more aware of the thing that will light you up when it comes across your way. And I don't necessarily think that I'm doing my purpose yet, but I'm well on my way of my purpose. And as long as I keep showing up with that enthusiasm as a person, yeah. then that will come to be. So let me ask it a different way. How did you find what you were good at and how did that evolve? So when I was hired in tech, I thought I was in a customer service role. Um, so we'll back up. So I didn't really have much of a peer group in high school. Um, honors courses, varsity tennis, but kind of a loner. I just had one friend at the time that I would spend most of my time with. I did a, a made varsity freshman year and bumped off two seniors. So I alienated myself pretty quickly. Not that our team had this extraordinary tennis team, but it's good enough to make the team. Um, and, and I feel a lot better being in my head and writing. So it, nobody was pressuring me one way or another. I just knew that I wasn't as static being there. And when I had gone to my counselor to find out what credits I needed for the next year, because um, I dropped out March of my junior year, she's like, oh, you need uh, four credits. And I'm like, okay, for next for this year, but what credits do I need for next year? And she's like, no, that, that's all you need. I'm like, well, you want me to be here for a year and a half? <laughs> no, like, well, how do I get out of this situation? Because yeah. I'm someone that if I'm 1% unhappy, then I'm actually 99% unhappy. So I just wanted to be in a different environment. Mm. And so when I got a tech job, like I had admin jobs for a little while. And then when I got my tech job, I thought I was in customer service. Um, I didn't know I was in sales until two things happened. One, a report went out to the team and it had all of the, the direct hires because they've been there long enough to make the board. And then it had a line that said contractor slash Mary Shenouda. And I got a bunch of pings saying, congratulations. And I, because I was still a contractor, I didn't know what they were referring to. I didn't get the email. Mm. And, and it had 56% of quota, 80% of quota, Mary Shenouda slash contractor, 156% of quota. I'm like, what is quota? Right. What, what, what does this mean? How did I do this? And, um, the gentleman that was talking to me about it, he's like, you're going to get a great commission check. What's commission? He was like, well, this is your base, and then this is what you get as a bonus based on your performance. And I was, I'm a kid. I'm like, I'm rich. <laughs> this is amazing. And so I, I quickly identified how much I love this idea of sales because you get what you put into it. Yeah. So that was something I was good at, working hard, making my manager proud, making him money. Um, but every time, I was known as a little bit of a flight hazard because I would sit at a company for a couple years, get bored, even though I was performing well, and then find a new job, go do that, get excited again. But everyone knew that if Mary was on the team, she's giving you 100% when she's there. Right. And then when she's giving you 99, she's gonna move on. Um, and I didn't understand why I wasn't pumped. I get 500% of quota and I'm like, cool. And I kept thinking the new job would excite me, but it was, I think it was the idea of the, the learning something new and novelty. And when the time came to pursue my own thing and I told my boss, hey, I'm gonna pursue this private chef thing, he first asked me to go back to my desk. <laughs> and then he followed up and said, you've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I've been waiting for this day to come. 
And um, so I was able to be in an environment now with my own businesses where every day is something new and something different and problem solving and becoming private chef. I didn't necessarily choose it. It came to me as an opportunity. So when I got my diagnosis as a celiac and changed my diet in, in a couple of months, every pain I'd ever had my entire life, because I was in the ER multiple times a month, but that was normal for me. I just expected it. I was at my desk with sunglasses all the time. I would take naps under my desk because I was in an environment where everyone was 10, 15 years my senior, and I had to perform not just as good as them, but better than them to maintain my role. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I got that diagnosis and all those symptoms went away, people noticed you're in, you don't look like you're in pain anymore. What is different? And I talked about what I wasn't eating. At the time, paleo was becoming popular. It was easier to say paleo than go down the list of things. About what year is this, just for context? Ish. Uh, I, always, I always go to when did the Giants win the World Series the first time. So it was 2010, so about 2012, 2011, 2012. Okay. Um, 2012, the second time the Giants won the World Series. <laughs> um, in my lifetime rather uh, and so and having a conversation with someone they're like what are you doing differently I talked about my diet like I don't have time to cook why don't you just cook for me and my response was like I don't cook for people I manage multi-million dollar contracts right, right, right. and he's like well I'm willing to pay a private chef X amount of dollars to make me food and in San Francisco I joke you can make a lot of money and still be poor it's all going towards your cost of living so I saw it as a side hustle so I took on that person as a client. Within those two weeks, I was getting my wisdom teeth removed and I was um, put under for that. And when I came to, the oral surgeon said, I'm so excited you're gonna be my private chef. So my unconscious mind had convinced herself she's a private chef. So those are my first two side hustle clients that were accidentally acquired. And I was trying to do both for a few months super tired, body shut down on 101, broke out into full sweat, and I had to choose one or the other. Took a day off from work, went to the ferry building with a friend of mine, colleague of mine, in my head, not sure what the right move is here. I see a man walking towards me. Um, I open the door for him, because I'm a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, thank you. And I was surprised he noticed that gesture, and I was like, you're welcome. He's like, Chivalry's not dead. And he walks away, and my friend goes, you are the most obtuse person I've ever met in my life <laughs> because you took the day off from work to find out if you wanted to be a chef full-time and you opened a door door of opportunity for Tyler Florence who is a famous chef in Northern California he has uh, the great food truck race mm -hmm. and I was like oh yeah that's the sign I'm done I'm gonna quit and so the next day I resigned uh, and went all in on being a private chef and I'm good at private chefing I don't love at the time I don't love every gig I took but I'm really good at it I'm passionate about the thing I'm talking about, and, and now I'm doing something that's new, exciting, and novel, and I get to build it however which way I want, and that's sort of how it found me. Can we go back to when you were working the tech job? It sounds like the journey became the destination, right? So you enjoyed the challenge of new things, and then when you had kind of conquered the mountain, you had to go find a different mountain. Mm -hmm. So what changed with food because it sounds like you you found your mountain and then you built a mansion on it an empire so the nature of how I work with clients all my clients are high performers whether they're professional athletes tech founders actors and they're they're at the top of their game 
and I get hired along with the team that comes in to find the one or two percent competitive advantage we can give them, and that's always a new mountain. It's always exciting. It's okay. so individual. So you're still you're still doing that, just in a different way. Yeah. Okay. And then building a, a CPG company with no experience every day is an, every day is a fire in a mountain. <laughs> and then the other thing I was curious about is is this you know all or nothing, very binary. It's this or it's that. It's black or it's white. It's all in or it's not in. I mean, it sounds like. You know, when I plug the toaster and I turn the air conditioner on and I have the something else running, I pop a circuit breaker. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's what happened to you on the 101. Like, mm-hmm. it's overload, system overload, and you shut down. So, what is that? You think, have you, have you gone into what that is about your personality, your character, your, however you want to describe it? I like to think of myself as really resilient, but sometimes stubbornness comes with the resilience. And I've gotten better over time at being able to identify when it is to, to pull the switch myself versus having the switch pulled for me. Um, I've had, my life has not gone without strife or traumatic events that have formed the kind of woman that I am. I always say I'm the kind of woman I wanted to be when I grew up. So the what doesn't really matter. And I, I wouldn't be that way without this immense sense of mortality and being, um, inspired by that a lot of people in my life are no longer here and a lot of them it's not fair it was too soon it was too young so I think like the powers that be are going to decide otherwise but the only way I feel like I can honor their legacy is to take all of their amazing qualities and infuse them into my personality and and be as happy and fulfilled as I can be um, to honor that and that's really important for me um, but then also I'm hardworking and I'm stubborn and I want to prove that I can do something and I want to make people proud. And so those things can, can conflict sometimes. And mm-hmm. so in the past, I would go until I'd burn out. Now I go until I'm almost going to burn out, <laughs> start journey. I'm still learning. Yeah. And where I'm going with that question is like, so how do you, what are some of the signs that you're about to burn out? And then what do you do about it? So how do you recharge? You know, how do you, what are some of the signals? And this is a very common problem. I mean, sure. all of us have the same kind of challenge, I would guess, in some shape or form. Sure. Um, certain signs would be my body feels inflamed. We want to talk about food, like be, being really aware of your body. Your gut is really powerful. Um, I say trust your gut at the end of each of my emails and it's, it's it has multiple meanings. So I'll sometimes get a feeling of anxiousness in my stomach or my joints will start to hurt or I won't sleep as well. And sometimes I will ignore that and just like, no, I'm going to push through it. And then I'll miss words when I'm writing an email or I'll be something that is, shouldn't give me emotion is giving me emotion or I isolate. Mm. I don't want to talk to anybody. Um, And before I would just do those things and, push aside what I see is happening. Now, as it comes up and I'm aware, I'll be like, that's interesting. Let's explore that. Did I really not get enough sleep for something else or am I, am I burning out? Mm-hmm. And nature is huge. I, I started doing peak hikes. I love the fact that you're 14, 15 miles in at elevation. You're so tired, but so happy. And there's no room to think about anything other than get one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Also great metaphor to fit in with your whole life <laughs> philosophy. I love um, it. I have certain people that 
they know that if I call them, I don't want your opinion, I don't want your advice, I want you to listen, because I, I, that is what is most powerful for me, is to get it out of my body. Mm. So please just show up and listen. And um, I, being by the ocean, I don't get a lot, I take a lot of vacations, so I take micro vacations. So my environment's really important to me. So when I feel burnt out, I'm gonna walk out to the ocean, remind myself how small I am by compared to everything else, and that the thing that I'm probably feeling won't matter in five or 10 years, and these are things that matter, and that's a 15 minute like relaxation. Um, and then before that, obviously, I, I like to think I have a pretty solid diet. I do my best to take care of my body, boxing, body work, prayer, meditation, mm-hmm. all those tick marks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and food has become everything, right? It's become literally the fuel that gets you to where you need to go. Talk yeah. about that a little bit. Um, there's food it will either help you or hurt you. There's no just benign food. I take that really seriously. And the more understanding you have on food, um, the more confident you can become and the more in power you feel and the more compassion you can feel and then with compassion you can solve the world so that's the whole like the bigger grand thing is that and um, diet is so individual and I get really disappointed when I see someone who is being misled by one trend and suffering not understanding that everything in your life can and should be really individualized and so I really want to empower people in that way and it's not a sexy topic but everyone, nobody turns down a, a free meal or a meal in general. And it's just a really great tool to make something tangible and get somebody's trust to then talk about these other topics and how they relate to food. And so when I'm making a meal for an athlete or doing fat fudge, yeah, it's about the food and the synergy of food and the chemistry of food that is really cool. And how are you going to be faster, stronger, yeah. have more energy? But it's also like, what is that going to do to you as an individual human? And how are you going to, as a result of feeling your best, move mountains in positive ways in places that I can't even reach. I love this idea of customization because, I mean, it's laughable. You, you'll see an ad or you hear an ad for a medication and it's like, take this medication. However, you know, your ears might fall off or your you know, hair falls out or you, know, you grow another 17 inches, whatever. It's like all these weird side effects. You're like, why would I ever <laughs> like, try that? I can't wait for the day that we have customized medicine mm-hmm. that fits our DNA, our biology, you know, that the right dosage, the right absorption sure. level. And I would assume that food is the same kind of idea. I do my best to make what we have available to us, supplement food, modalities of training, individual right now. Like as, as any human that's listening to this interview, you, you have full rights within your power and within your insurance to go to your doctor and say, I want a full pituitary panel, a full panel. I want a full nutrition panel. I want to know exactly what's going on under the hood. And that's step one. There's, I would say there's like um, levels to it. Level one is I'm just gonna eat healthier. Level two is I'm gonna try these three different diets for a period of time that makes sense where I can see change. Then there's level three, doing testing and knowing what's going on. And then there's level four, doing the testing, involving the team and getting really, really customized. Mm-hmm. And you can do that now. There's, I mean, it takes work, trial and error. It takes finding the right doctor. It's not without its challenges. I do tell people that when you're looking for a doctor, you don't want to find a doctor that's necessarily smarter than you, but a doctor that is just as curious as you are to go down that route with you. Um, so there's nothing stopping you from beginning to do that customization. 
And where do you find people like that? Because that's not the general medical community, right? Most of the doctors, you know, you show up and she says, you know, oh, you're fine. You know, just drink more water or something. You know, you need more sleep. Yeah, just like dating. It's an interview process. Okay. So if you can get a recommendation from someone, start there, see that doctor. Your gut will tell you if this doctor jives with you or not. Yeah. And you got to go see another doctor and another doctor. There's so many resources online for doctors that um, believe in the more of the customizable stuff. And Is that a holistic doctor or like what kind of doctor? General practitioner? So in, in my world, for myself personally and for my clients, we have your primary care physician on the same string as the holistic doctor, on the same string as the trainer, on the same string yeah. as your OB. Like they all, that is a team. And if someone doesn't want to be on that string, sorry, you can't be on the team because everyone needs to know what they're doing. Yeah. And I believe there's a time and a place for Western and Eastern medicine. Um, and there are websites dedicated to finding people of each nature and based on what they believe in. And there's a lot of doctors now that will do um, Skype consultations and put in the lab work to you. So you don't have to feel like, well, I live in the middle of nowhere. You're in LA, you're so lucky, da 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 da. I'm like, true, don't wanna take that, that benefit away. But now it is all about customization and now they're making tools and technologies. Like you, there's now apps for concierge doctors like on yeah. call it's crazy yeah there's so much conversation just around that topic um i could probably talk about that for a long time for selfish reasons but i mean that's been my experience too is um there are some great doctors and some not so great doctors um honestly for me the jury is still out like i feel like the medical community in general knows a lot but we're still just guessing intelligently sure um and i've felt like that guinea pig or i felt like that um, test case trying to figure out my own right. biology my own and at some point you realize that you have to be part of that process too you can't yeah. just be the guinea pig yeah and so my doctor now if I tell him something isn't right even if the test shows something slightly off he's like I'm gonna trust how you feel over what this test says right and it took a long time to find a doctor like that where he's like technically you're the boss so what test you want we're gonna do and I mean, that's, so I have a, a non-cancerous pituitary adenoma. It's a, a tumor on my pituitary gland. And it took us a couple of years to find because like something just wasn't right. My hormones were slightly off. My sleep was slightly off. And through the whole process, he's like, things aren't alarming in your test results, but you're telling me you feel this way. We're going to keep looking. Yeah, something's got to be wrong. And then we found Herbert is what I named him. And without that curiosity, without him trusting me that I know my body, that I wouldn't know that that existed and be able to treat it now. Very good advice. Um, the other thing that I kind of hear audience, people who don't know you well ask in my ear is, what gives you the right? How do you know? Like, you know, all of these kind of shame-based um, questions, because here you are, high school dropout, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, no formal medical training, mm -hmm. no formal food or culinary training, mm -hmm. and yet you're killing it, you're crushing it in, this, in these areas. So how did you do that? I mean, it's remarkable, but you know, how, do you, how do you explain that? When I respect my limitations, I increase my potential. So I'm not the doctor looking at the test results. I'm working with my client's doctor. I'm working with the nutritionist. We are fusing our knowledge together. I admit what it is I don't know and the best I can do, and I will go do the research to find it out and then work with people who are much smarter than me and have those credentials. I'll never say I'm the nutritionist or the doctor. Most of the time when I tell clients like, we're all gonna be guessing, 
and experimenting and tweaking. We just need your commitment to be part of that process. Um, and back when I was in corporate America and I'd have to interview kids coming out of college, I'd ask them, so what's your experience besides college? Real life application, I've been told, and now I agree, has a lot of value over having read something in a textbook. Right. Um, and so somebody who yesterday graduated from culinary school or yesterday graduated from nutrition school, they have zero use cases. At this point, I have over 3,000 use cases, and they're all so different, and the textbook wouldn't have been able to help me with that. I hope that answers that question. <laughs> oh, well, it just sounds like you're drawing from kind of your own DNA, which is you're either all in or you're not, right? And so whatever mountain it is, you're gonna go climb it, figure out how to climb it. Might have different terrain. Um, the weather might be different, cold, slippery, hot, whatever. Mm -hmm. You're gonna figure it out. Mm -hmm. Everything is figure outable. I think Marie Forleo says that. I really like that. Tell me about the fat fudge story. So fat fudge is truly a product that's a result of the audience that I built. They are the ones that sort of asked us to become a product and it was a series of, of being aware of the things that are lacking and bringing passion to everything that you do. So um, I was a big fan of goo packets and gel packets, pre-paleo. Um, find out my diagnosis. I realized those things don't make me feel that great, but I loved how convenient they were, especially when I'm traveling a lot on, on planes and such. Um, but I knew I wanted to come up with a replacement at some point. So remember when I went first, when paleo became the paleo chef, there were no, there was no paleo bread or paleo tortillas or gluten-free things that are easily accessible. Yeah. Everything had to be made from scratch. And I'm like, I'm not going to, I have too many other things to worry about than making this, but I know I want something like that. Um, and then I got asked to consult with the Oracle sailing team about food for the athletes when they're out in the water sailing. Something that's portable, something that's easily digestible. And I'm like, man, I wish I had that goo replacement. And at the, the best I could do at the time was something to do with powdered, um, powdered chia seeds. And I'm like, this is good enough, but I still wasn't really happy with it. So I shelved the fact that I need to come back to this at some point. And then um, as a private chef, I was making something called unicorn fuel, which is a combination of spices, turmeric, maca, cayenne, et cetera, the things you'll find in fat fudge that was being blended, blended into a latte for my clients for them to drink in the morning. And I called it unicorn fuel as a joke on the internet and it went viral and it was voted best coffee hack, I think of 2014, uh, the second place. And so this is also at a time where several other coffee brands were really gaining momentum too. Yeah. Where it was all centered around healthy body, healthy mind, yeah. you know, hacking, uh, biohacking. And I wasn't even a brand. It was just a little recipe from a little private chef, well, yeah. <laughs> which was interesting that it was voted as a, a coffee hack because I'm actually, I actually don't love the word hack in the first place, but I was not, not the magazine that voted it that way. Um, and one of my readers measured it all out by weight, put it in a canister and posted, I have unicorn dust. I'm like, that's brilliant. I'm going to put that on my counter. So I have unicorn dust on my counter. My clients are loving it. They're all very different. At this time, how many clients did you have? How many were you maintaining? At that time, I probably had eight or nine individuals. And then I would speak at different organizations. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't meal prep. Um, sometimes it was meal prep if it was, you know, we're getting ready for a roll and it's a condensed period of time. Um, 
I, I like the fact that I had clients all over and, and I would go in, we'd do a protocol, I would teach their private chef that's full time. So I could always have the excitement of, again, I want to hack something new and like do this and do that and do this and do that and then have um, my reach stay so I can move on and help somebody new. Right. Like I would get bored if I had one client all the time. Yeah. So um, I had the canister on my counter. Um, Everyone's loving it. Everyone's telling me different ways it makes them feel. And then I'm making a dessert called halawa or halva, depending on where in the Middle Eastern Mediterranean from, which is simply honey tahini that's been crystallized. And then it has an interesting texture where it's firm at first and then it melts and it's creamy, but it's very temperature fickle. And I was multitasking and missed the timing. So I knew it was going to become fudge. And so I just took the unicorn dust and dumped it in there to make a chocolate fudge that was spicy. And the next morning I'm eating it and it's delicious. And then that line of things that had happened in the previously, I need goo and I don't like the thing I did for um, the Oracle sailing team. And I'm like, okay, this is amazing. If I mess with the uh, ingredient amounts, it's not a treat anymore. It's actually functional fudge. So I was super pumped, started making functional freezer fudge for my clients. They're like, ah, my one's like, I had the best writing day in the studio. I golfed my best game. I had the best day on the field. I'm like, okay, this is cool. So I posted the recipe. The recipe went viral. And I got pictures from readers saying... Where did you post it, by the way? Uh, Instagram. Okay. And then my website, paleochef.com. And bags, little sandwich baggies of it melted, of people taking it on trail runs expecting moms are like, I use this during labor. And I'm like, what? This is a crazy. And it has a lot to do with the way it absorbs into your system versus like a protein bar is dense. Your body stops to break that down. Um, and so my audience is like, you've got to turn this into a product. Like, well, I don't know how to turn it into a product, but we'll figure it out. So I put on a unicorn head um, and went on Periscope and Instagram and said, I'm putting up 50 orders of 12 packs for this price. I'll figure it out if you guys want to buy the product. So in an hour it sold out, which is really cool. And what I found more interesting when I looked at who bought it was who bought it. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know these people follow me. And then I had this feeling of like, I have to make my manager proud. I have to make these people proud that I didn't realize were following my work and want my product. Oh my gosh. Um, and so I, I put up a system with a ketchup bottle and a scale and an Amazon heat sealer. And that 600 packets is, is 50 orders. So every week I would pre-sell 50 and it got to the point where we're selling out in a second. And people would write in, what is this, a Beyonce ticket? Like so angry. Meanwhile, the recipe is still public and still public today for original. So I'm like, okay, now, now that I've done this enough Mondays, I feel like I have a viable product. Let's see what it's gonna take to really scale it. Well, and you had money coming in, right? So yeah. you had... I wasn't rolling in the dough, but I knew that, I <laughs> knew that um, the way it was priced back then was enough to cover my overhead and then to make the product. Well, so let's not take all that for granted because I think, at least I hear all the time, you did it in the right order of operations. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will say, I have this amazing idea, I'm gonna run out and make a bunch of them, and then I'm gonna go out and try and sell them, which I think is risky and backwards, mm -hmm. right? What you did, and it's subtle but super important lesson, is you, well, First, it was an idea that sort of was a seed planted in your mind from a long time ago because it was something that you wanted. Mm -hmm. And then it rang the bell again when people started clamoring for it, basically. Mm -hmm. 
and then you're like, all right, well, I'm going to test to see if it's viable. Mm -hmm. And I think Seth Godin's talked a lot about this, the minimum viable audience, mm -hmm. not the maximum viable audience, which you did perfectly. And by definition, I think what he means is go out and find the least amount of people that you can serve to still accomplish your purposes mm -hmm. so that you don't go broke, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, trying, you're trying, you know, the idea is to come back and fight another day. Um, and so it sounds like you followed that pattern perfectly. You met the market demand, the market showed up, they mm -hmm. said we want more, mm -hmm. and then what happened? Um, I also tell my audience that, you know, you guys are my unofficial board members, so your feedback matters and we're going to make tweaks. And it was, I mean, it's still a beautiful experience, we still do business that way. Um, so I, I knew that I couldn't hand pack anymore. Like, if you look at my, I still have the hand packing muscle. Like, that's not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, I found uh, a co-packer and I asked about what, what minimums are and then I'm like, okay, so I don't know this process at all. And that's a really big number that I don't have. So I went to my audience and said, here's the deal. I don't know what I'm doing. So I need your trust. Um, I don't want to go to a bank and get a loan. I don't want investors. I don't want to go on reality TV. I don't want to go on Kickstarter because there's no accountability. If you will pre-order a certain dollar amount in the next 30 days, um, you will either have a product in three to six months <laughs> or you'll get a refund on your product. Um, but let's, let's do this. And in 30 days, just under $90,000 in pre-orders came in on a product that didn't really exist. And I was able to start the business with a co-packer. And I mean, it, it has challenges, fires, disasters, but what an honor to have those, those challenges. Um, but that's, that is how Fat Fudge started was, like without without my audience pointing this out, asking for it, trusting me through the process, allowing me to learn how to be a founder on the job, um, I wouldn't it wouldn't be where it is right now, which is still just at the beginning, which is really still really cool to say. And you told me a couple of fun stories about the packaging off camera. You said it was functional fudge, and then you changed it. Yeah. So I um, the whole thing about you know. Fat is always the enemy, and now the whole thing of uh, fat's good, and, and I'm like, it's, no, a lot of ingredients don't need to be demonized, it's how much you, you take in, I wanted a lot of my audience to not fear fat, and so I always say fat makes you fat, P-H-A-T, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, that's so much more fun than functional fudge, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I'm, 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 I'm very deliberate in how it was designed, because I feel like it's an inclusive brand, I think wellness needs to be inclusive, which is why the recipe is public. If you can't buy it, you can make it at home. And I wanted the packaging to reflect that. So the customers, the audience is so diverse of what kind of person. Like when I was initially thinking about the product, I was thinking about a really cool web de website design where you'd have um, boots of a contractor and then shoes of a dancer and then little kid shoes. And like, it's, it's for anyone that wants to use it however they choose to use it. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And, and so where are we today with it? So it's now... What's really great is to date, I've spent no money on marketing. So um, it's all been organic growth. Any publication you've seen me in has been them reaching out. Um, Whole Foods, Rocky Mountain was my first major retailer. They reached out. Erewhon was my first retailer when I was handpacking it. They reached out. They found you word of mouth or through social. Yeah. Um, and, and like, for example, when Whole Foods called me, I'm like, hey, I'm a small business of one. I don't know what I'm doing. And the guy, the gentleman is like, I love your product. I use it on a, on a rise up cyclist, had the best ride. Um, I know the position you're in. I appreciate the honesty. Let's, let's help you. Let's figure it out. Uh, and I don't, 
you don't have to pretend like you know everything. I've, I, my, I've been able to grow and develop far more by admitting everything I don't know in meetings that people think they need to feel like they like to pretend like they know. Yeah. So I say I don't know a lot, or or sometimes a retailer will call me and it's like, we want X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. And they think I'm hardballing. Right. And I'm not. I'm like, no, I really just can't do that. Like, oh, you're super tough. Okay, we'll give you what you want. I'm like, this is so funny. How did you figure that out though? Because I'm thinking like, I'm hearing that Richard Branson advice, which is, you know, if someone asks you, can you do this? Your first answer is immediately, yes, I can. And then figure it out later. Mm -mm. Um, but how did you figure out that honesty is the best policy in your case? Um, well, I, 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 honesty is just a huge part of who I am as an identity, but my, I, had a, I had an amazing boss that spanned on and off over a decade. His name is Jason Hahn. If you're watching Jason Hahn, I miss you. Um, he was a very quiet senior vice president, and when he spoke, people were really like, they're scared of him. And I initially wasn't on his team, but I always noticed him in meetings, and he would notice me, and sometimes he'd come over and say one or two things to help me with a deal, and I really respected that. And when I got the opportunity to work for him under his, on his team, I loved it. And he taught me, one, to speak less, which I'm still working on, but also um, not knowing something is an opportunity to learn, and you need to know your stuff and tell me when you don't know something so we can fill in those gaps. And so we would go into our sales meetings and he could drill me and I would, I would know everything until I didn't. He's like, well, go figure that out. Great. Cause the last thing, cause it, he's very good at, if you say, you know, he'll keep asking you questions and uncover the fact that you're full of it. Mm -hmm. And so there was one particular meeting that we went in as a big team and I didn't know my stuff. And for some reason I pretended like I knew something and he kept drilling me and I'm like, you know what, dude, I, I just don't know. He's like, then say that. It's not that difficult to just say that. I'm like, you're right. And I walk out and the team's like, dude, he was such an asshole to you. I'm like, you thought he was an asshole? I was the asshole. I showed up not knowing my stuff. Yeah, you were fronting. And I'm like, and that is such a poor reflection on my, my skill set, my ability, my integrity. And he really taught me that there's no shame in not knowing. Yeah. That's huge, actually. Um, there's so much there. I I want to break down and unpack a little bit, but that's sort of the essence, isn't it? I mean, a lot of advice that we hear, fake it till you make it, for example, is one I can think of. And maybe that works in some instances, but we're super glad that the pilot flying our plane is not faking it till she makes it or he makes it, right? Um, <laughs> but it's also very hard to admit when you don't know something because then you might not get the same opportunity or maybe it... Like, how many of us, and I'm just asking rhetorically, are fronting? How many of us are just, you know, inflating our resumes or our ego or whatever, for whatever reasons? It's, it's a good gut check. Mm -hmm. um, it's it risky, though, too. It is risky, but also um, not every opportunity is your opportunity. Don't be so thirsty for opportunity. Drink from every cup that's given to you. And so when I go into situations where I'm like, uh, yeah, I'll, t I'll take the role. I'll be figuring it out. But I think people bet on Mary when she says she's going to figure it out, she's going to figure it out. So I, I trust her with the project, even if I don't think she has the experience, because I know she's going to acquire that experience. Um, and I, it just speaks to the, the micro legacy that I'm creating. Yeah, I'm just thinking back to my own experience. You know, when I was working for somebody else, uh, I've been doing what I'm doing for 10 years. So um, I still have a boss. It's the audience, you know, and other, other things. And, but. Um, I remember fronting a lot 
mainly because I didn't trust the other person to make such a good management or leadership decision. I worked for a... Can you give me an example? Um, I worked for people, uh, I worked for a couple of different people who were very insecure. Mm -hmm. And I was very ambitious. And, but at the same time, I didn't know any, know, know everything, or probably anything is, is fair to say. Um, but if, if, I, if I would have said the exact truth of, you know, my breadth of experience or knowledge, I don't think that person would have given me opportunities um, because they were afraid that it might reflect badly on them. Sure. I definitely, we're, if we're talking like 18, 19, 20, 21, saying I don't know did not serve me well. Uh, I mean, I mean, even, you know, in my 20s and 30s, I still, I, even now, I still have that same thing. But maybe one thing to consider is, you know, honesty is the best policy, any way you slice it. But it should also be taking into consideration who you're being honest with. Mm -hmm. Because that person also has choices, right? And they may or may not make the best one sure. um, for the situation. So uh, if we want to like get split hairs, there's one of my first big, big, uh, not big cooking, really big named client called me, asked me to cook for him and some gentlemen. And I actually had a different gig and I called the other client. And I'm like, care about you? You're going to Whole Foods tonight. I got to take this opportunity. And what they wanted me to cook, I had never cooked before. And so we want you to make caribou that was hunted. My response is, I can do that. Not I've never done it before, not I'm not sure, it's like, I can do that. And so I'm in the kitchen cooking and trying to figure, I'm like looking at the meat, trying to figure out, okay, this is really dry, how do I cut it? What dish am I gonna do? And I talked to myself in the kitchen and I thought I was alone and I was <laughs> in the oven and I was talking to my hunter's pie, shepherd's pie play and I, and I, I'm, <laughs> I go, man, I hope you turn out okay. And he was behind me, he goes, what? <laughs> and I go, oh, I've never cooked caribou before. And he was like, you said you can do it. I'm like, bro, I can do this. I understand food. I just hadn't done this before. Trust. And he's like, oh, like my friends are going to be here. And it came out amazing. They came back for seconds and thirds. They were super happy. All the men were talking, then got quiet because they were eating. And it wasn't dishonest. I can do this. I haven't had experience with it, but I can. Um, so that's like one example where I'm being truthful. Yeah. yeah. Strategically. Yeah. Was there ever a time that you weren't as truthful, truthful as you wanted to be and it went sideways? I think the times, the times in which I haven't been truthful and it, and, and it bit me in the butt has to do more with like relationships more so than business. Or like I don't, not really, I'm not really, I'm not really enjoying this conversation or this dynamic, but I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. So let me like shove that feeling down or not everyone likes to have a conflict conversation. Yeah. And, and you became a passenger in the relationship instead of um, co-driver co or something. Um, really reluctant observer where I like detach. And I'm like, everything about this does not feel good. But I think this is what you're supposed to do. And I don't want to speak up. And then, I'll, and then it, it ends. And I have this immense sense of, I'm a sad, but also like relief. And I'm like, okay, well, don't do that again. Like speak up. Um, so it doesn't really happen as much in business, but it, it, I think it more so happens in personal relationships. For the sake of the audience, you know, what mistakes have you made in business that, I mean, a lot of people say failure is not an option. We know that that is not true. 
you can't have success without failure. And failure is um, subjective. I believe in pivot. Yeah, well, I think Oprah said sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. Mm -hmm. uh, I subscribe to that, even though sometimes I feel like I'm losing. Um, hopefully, I do learn from it. Yeah. But um, so, what has gone wrong in order to get it right? Um, with learning how to be a manager. I have such a high standard for myself that I'm still learning how to manage a team and manage other individuals because I've always been in individual roles. I played tennis. I was in sales. I'm a private chef. I joke. and I'm like, I'm not really a team player. I love supporting the collective, but I struggle with, I communicate a certain way that was, I learned it in a corporate environment and doesn't translate. Mm -hmm. So the standard that I hold sometimes makes the people I work with or work for me, um, become paralyzed to make a decision because they don't want to make the wrong decision because they don't want to let me down because of my standard. And that's my fault in the way that I've communicated, yeah. um, or the examples I've set. So I'm, I'm learning that. I'm How are you fixing it? Like, is it just, is, cause it's all about expectations, right? Right. I ask my vendors and my team members to hold me accountable. Tell me when I'm being unreasonable. Tell me what it is you don't know. Like, make it a conversation. Make decisions on your own accord. And, and if something goes wrong, come to me with solutions that you've come up with so it can be more of a solution-oriented conversation versus, like, I've messed up. So it feels like you are part of the team, you're part of the growth of this company. Um, and it allows me to, to, to also check the language that I'm using um, or the, just trying to learn how to be a better boss. Um, I've made some strategic mistakes. Like I launched one version um, of Fat Fudge for the wrong reason, and therefore it didn't move as fast. And I, and I, and I kind of knew it. What was that reason? Um, there had been a lot of copycats, and there was one that was doing it very poorly. And I'm like, okay, well, let's just, let's just make them moot. And so I, I put one version ahead of the other that I probably shouldn't have. And I did it for the wrong, I did it out of like a competitive nature or a scarcity nature. And I know, I know better. I know it never works out when I do that. So that was more of a strategic mistake that I made. I'm thinking about another question, which is, do you look at your competitors? Do you, are you paying attention to the landscape? I normally don't for whatever reason I did at that time. Okay. Um, so you stopped caring about what everyone else is doing and just focused on. Yeah. Cause I, I've had, a, I, I mean, there's been a couple instances where bigger brands have, uh, have attempted to, to, Replicate this. Yes. And I saw a quote the other day, but they can't copy your spirit. <laughs> um, and what happened in those instances is my audience that saw how I built the company, they took care of that for me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I just need to focus on my thing. Um, how did they take care of it? They were very noisy. I'm like the Beyonce of Paleo. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> no, they were really noisy. They're like, this is, this is, we watched Mary build this company. Like, how dare you? And that are no longer doing that, hmm. which is really cool. That's awesome. Are, are there other simil similar products in the market? Um, I, it's a question I wish I had a better answer for. Goo is probably a substitute. It's, um, you know, if it's, you can handle all the sugar and all that. Yeah, I get compared to goo, protein bars, nut butter packets, but this is a nut-free product. There is, um, some of them have butter, some of them don't have butter. It is made by a performance chef. It is everything you need and nothing you don't. So um, shortly after Fat Fudge became popular, 
I then notice other companies putting proteins and functional foods and functional mushrooms into squeeze packs, but it was still nut-based and it was still uh, very keto slanted, whereas again, I tried to be inclusive. So I think um, pros and cons of carving out a new market. And then when I saw big companies doing it, um, I was actually really happy. I'm like, oh yeah, help help spread the message for me <laughs> so they can it find validates. it. Yeah, it's sort of like what Elon is doing with electric cars. He's happy that Toyota makes them and Honda makes them because yeah. and Audi because now they're more acceptable and yeah. And I say I say to people like fat fudge is not for everyone. Some I there is a tweet that had had gotten a little bit of noise for a couple of days where I'm like other entrepreneurs are like my product's great everyone will love it you must buy it and me I'm like my product's not for everyone you might not like it and that's okay there's so many other companies that can fulfill your palate because I tell also customers that are upset you may not like my product but you will love the customer service in the process mm -hmm. so you still have a positive connotation with the brand fat fudge even if you hate my product and that's okay yeah, and so smart to flip the script on that, right? Because, again, you know, I think Seth is a mutual friend of ours, and he says all the time... Not my friend, I just really admire his work. Well, I mean, <laughs> we can extend it that far, yeah. but um, you know, he talks about making average products for ad average people never works. Um, you have to make it for a niche, again, minimum, small, uh, minimum viable audience, and then those people start telling those people. Mm -hmm. And then the other question I have is, what do you get uh, when the when someone says, um, you have a product, not a company. I haven't gotten that yet. I mean, are there product extensions in? The oh yeah. Or? So there's, there's, um, four versions of squeeze packs and jars of the same thing. We've got original, we've got spicy cacao, um, spicy, there's, uh, literature around what cayenne can do for performance enhancement and recovery there is a coffee-free version one with strawberry that i'm doing like a co-product with four sigmatic because i really believe in the power of mushrooms and um, that one's called power and then we've got a, a recovery one so it, there's a purpose for each version and then moving into um, tea coffee and water activators so we've got like our fat beet latte and um, like my replacement to to uh, sugary electrolyte drinks without saying any <laughs> names. So it's, it's rather than come up with 25 new products right now, cause it's not like I have all this money in the bank to throw at it, make this work, make this work, make this work, and then slowly keep adding to it. Um, because when I really think that when you're building a company, the way that I'm building my company there, there's no, it's not a race. I'm not, when is, what is my deadline? There isn't a deadline, so let's just do it right. Um, I, think, I think Tim says this, Tim Ferriss says this, um, you don't have to scale your company, you have to love your company. So I don't want to scale it at the detriment of losing it all or not like the process. Is there an exit strategy? Have you gone there yet? Like, oh, um, what's the story? Is it, is it Lara Bars, I think, that got acquired by General Mills? Yeah. You know, um, funny coincidence with Lara Bars, I actually worked for Lara's dad, right out of college, uh, when I was working retail at Polo Ralph Lauren, working okay. my way through college, yeah. he ran that store. His name is Bill Mar. Did you ever meet her? I never. I, I I heard about her. Yeah. But I think she lived in Colorado at the time, and um, Bill was living, you know, by coastal. Um, but super interesting story. And you know, they got acquired. Yep. Uh, is that on your mind at all? Uh. So because. I am, I am also a formulator, so I formulate for a lot of other companies that have products, um, and a few of them 
have been acquired or on the way of being acquired, and I see what that model looks like. And it's really interesting who, what brands are acquiring companies in the paleo real food real food space, and allowing them to maintain their identity, maintain control over what's happening with the products, but be infused with so much play money to like really expand. That sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, I am going to not just be it. Uh, not so great CEO, I'll probably be a very unqualified CEO. So growing the business to a point where I have to be just a founder. Oh, don't sell yourself short, just a founder. I mean, I, I see you as the, the mad scientist. You know, I see you as, no, no, no. What's inside, you know, the, the experimentation, the development, the evolution, you know, the curiosity. Um, trying to solve your own problems, the empathy, you know, all those things I think certainly could make you a great CEO. I just don't think that you could sit still long enough to do that. Is my quick snap judgment. Time will tell. <laughs> you know, um, so maybe the better title for you is like visionary instead of Whoa. founder. Slow down. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just blowing smoke. Like, you know, we've gotten to know each other a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think you're amazing. Um, Appreciate that. And I hope that the people who are watching this are really digesting, if I'm going to use a term, um, all these really great nuggets of wisdom, because I think there's a lot here. And if you're not careful, you can miss it because they're very subtle. Yeah, I definitely, I, I, Fat Fudge is so much more than just the product. It's the example of one way to find success, of how to use your voice, of how to leverage your platform, um, of how to be the guy behind the guy. Like one of my clients was introducing me to dinner and said, well-known Mary and I'm like I'm not well-known he's like you're right you're not well-known but the well-known know you and you make impact in really interesting ways Mm -hmm. and I I share without on my platforms I never share who my clients are but I share the things that I do and I the number of people that say I quit my job because of something I read or I did this in a relationship and I'm like that's so cool I don't take credit for it I'm like the beauty you see in me is the beauty you know you had inside of you it was unlocked and I love doing that and so if if something happens with fat fudge and it's amazing and I move on, I'm probably going to do something transparent like that again, where I'm ultimately, I just want people to connect with themselves and everything that I do is a tool to get me to connect with someone, to get them to connect with themselves so they can appreciate their life and do the thing that makes them happy before we're all going to die one day. So before that happens, be filled in some way and do some good while you're here. 